0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And you're in for another edition of Summer Shorts, where we talk about some summery related topics that might not warrant a full-length episode, and today we are talking about lifeguards, and I'll offer you a quick anecdote. Okay. I almost drowned as a child. Often? No, <laughs> no there was really only one time that I can think of. Uh, I was probably four, maybe five years old, and we were swimming out at this... Um, it was called Sandy Creek, but it was like almost like a, a waterfront, you know, and they had a beach area roped off in a shallow area that I was supposed to stay in because I was the baby. And I remember seeing my older siblings swimming farther out in the deep end. So what did I do? I wanted to play with them. So I just started walking. And I remember all of a sudden, like walking, walking, walking. <laughs> and next thing I knew, I was underwater and I couldn't touch the floor and i remember trying to to yell for my mom and i'm sure there was a lifeguard on or multiple lifeguards on duty but it was my mom the lifeguard who saved me
1: yeah yeah cuz kids uh often drown quietly and quickly <laughs> so it's a good thing that your mother
0: and that's the end of this episode <laughs> i know no it is true that uh a lot of times we think that uh, lifeguards can spot drowning swimmers because they'll send up some kind of distress signal, but a lot of times it really is, you know, you're handicapped underwater. Mm -hmm. So thank goodness for lifeguards, because once swimming, which used to be known as bathing, became more popular as a recreational activity in the U.S. in the 1800s, people started drowning. (laughs)
1: Yeah, nobody, actually no one had ever drowned before. <laughs> no, never. Um, And by the early 20th century, as many as 9,000 people were drowning each year in the U.S. So that's a lot of people who are taking up swimming as a fun recreational activity, but who were not properly educated on how to safely swim. Well, and at first they
0: thought that on these large public beaches like you had out at Atlantic City, that maybe something like a lifeline that they could extend across... Um, certain areas of the water could save people because if you're in distress, you can just you just swim over to it. But then they quickly realized, like, oh wait, if you're drowning, you can't really swim
1: over because <laughs> yeah, to if something. you could swim, you wouldn't be drowning. Yes, um, and yeah, this is the time when they came up with the rescue board, also because the whole theory about saving people was that actually jumping in the water and performing a water rescue was a last resort because you didn't want to go down flailing with the uh, panicked drowning person.
0: Yeah, and that rescue board was invented in 1910, and two years later, it was the YMCA, in fact, that developed a volunteer national life-saving service, because initially, um, some cities were using police officers for water rescues, but... They're like, hey, this is diverting law enforcement resources for the rest of the city. And so beaches started hiring people specifically trained for water rescue. And then it grew with the YMCA and these volunteer services. And then in 1914, the American Red Cross followed up with Commodore Wilbert E. Longfellow establishing its life-saving corps, which trained swimmers across the U.S. in life-saving and resuscitation.
1: Yeah, moving up closer to now, but only slightly, uh, in 1964, the United States Lifesaving Association was formed by members of several California surf lifeguard agencies. And now that is actually open to basically anyone who's a lifeguard. Mm-hmm.
0: And it wasn't until 1983 to 1986 that the YMCA and the Red Cross uh, both developed standardized lifeguard trainings for people across the country. Um, and as a result, we we mentioned that in the early 20th century, there were about 9,000 people drowning each year in the U.S., and that's probably specifically at those uh, popular beaches like Atlantic City. And according to the CDC, that number, even though there are far more people who swim recreationally now, the number of drownings per year is about it's still 4,000 people. Every year. But statistically, if you think about how many more people swim compared to how many fewer people are drowning, it speaks to, um, the service that lifeguards do for us. And, um, there was a report on lifeguard effectiveness from the CDC, which cited an estimate that your chance of drowning at a beach protected by lifeguards can be less than one in 18 million.
1: Yeah. And lifeguards, actually, are doing their jobs because uh, they end up saving more than 100,000 people from drowning each year.
0: And I would like to know, too, if you heaped onto that the number of mothers who save their (laughs) drowning Christens per year. Their drowning Christens! That's (laughs) my (laughs) next band name. (laughs) There are so many many rescues going on. Uh, But, of course, since we're talking about, well, anything that we talk about on the podcast... Let's talk about women and lifeguarding. We were not able to find any kind of statistical breakdown of male versus female lifeguards. Uh, but in Los Angeles County in particular, there have been
1: some issues with gender discrimination on the beaches. Yeah, this article, it's a little dated, but it it still is interesting and it still raises some valid points. This is a 1992 L.A. Times article about gender discrimination and lifeguarding. And they point out that before 1973, no women had worked as ocean lifeguards in Los Angeles County. And it was that year that Kai Knoll and Wendy Paskin were hired as the first lady lifeguards. And they point out that in the late 80s, as we move forward, the county actually changed its qualifying standards to encourage more women and minorities to seek lifeguarding jobs. And while this did encourage more people to, you know, apply for the job and get the job, they then had to face, on top of discrimination (laughs) and harassment, then they had to face the whole attitude of, well, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for that quota system. And the thing about these women, too, is that they
0: were supreme athletes. Mm -hmm. A lot of these women were all-star swimmers. Some competed in the Olympics. Some were like in the Olympic trials. These ladies were no joke. But nevertheless, they still
1: had to deal with things such as not having proper bathrooms or changing facilities. Yeah, and of course, uh, you can assume, and you probably assumed right, they they cite male colleagues' sexual references about women, harassment and jokes from men on the beach. And interestingly, apparently they they had to deal with struggling male swimmers who refused female lifeguards' aid, and those male swimmers who also refused to heed their warnings just because they were women. Now, that story that we're talking about is from
0: 1992, but then, in California as well, November 2011... A California jury awarded San Diego lifeguard Allison Terry $100,000 after unanimously deciding that the city's lifeguard service discriminated against women by discouraging their promotions. And this took over five years of litigation, which Terry said completely exhausted her mentally and emotionally. And she lost a lot of friends because of it, because she had to drag all these male lifeguard colleagues
1: kind of down with her in a way. Yeah, she was actually the fifth female lifeguard to sue the city for gender discrimination and the first to win. She ended up resigning in 2009 just out of pure frustration. And finally, it wasn't until 2011 that she finally One, But the trial exposed some interesting things, one of which is that only six out of the 94 full-time lifeguard positions were held by women at the time. That's 6.4%. However, 27% of the seasonal lifeguards, those who earn an hourly wage and receive fewer benefits, were women. So it doesn't sound like it's really about ability. It sounds like, you know, women are doing the job. It's just that they weren't giving those full-time benefits paying jobs to women.
0: Yeah, and Alison Terry also alleged that uh, the city was actually setting up false roadblocks for women who wanted to take the different courses, certification courses needed to climb the ranks. Um, for instance, there was a personal watercraft certificate that you would have to earn in order to be promoted, and she said that... Any time that she would want to go out and like schedule her certification course, for some reason the watercraft would be mysteriously being used or something like that, like she was never able to get in, even though she knew full well that there would be times when it was available for her to do. Right. So whereas these real life, uh, real world female California lifeguards, some of which we've cited, not all of them, of course, but uh some of them have uh historically cited some gender discrimination that's gone on on the beaches. While all this is going on, we have the rise of a TV phenomenon that we would be remiss to not mention that created an entirely different uh, portrayal of female lifeguards on California beaches. By that, I'm talking about Baywatch.
1: Yeah, Baywatch has been credited with everything from uh, encouraging young women uh giving them role models to uh, providing reason for harassment of american travelers overseas yes baywatch
0: and this is because uh
1: baywatch is actually
0: one of the most successful television shows in television history uh by the time it was in its 10th season uh it was syndicated around the world it had over a billion viewers every week that's billion with a b in 140 different countries translated into 33 Languages. It's one of those shows that was kind of a flop in the U.S. and just took off in international syndication, which we see a lot too. We talked about um, a long time ago in our episode about soap operas.
1: Well, it did have David Hasselhoff.
0: Yes, who became very popular in <laughs> Germany. <laughs>
1: Um, well, the L.A. Times had an article in 2000 uh, written by Susan Spano. She talked to author Robert Young Pelton, who had written a book about basically dangerous travel situations that women find themselves in. And he connected harassment of American women travelers with Baywatch's syndication because there's this perception of American women, apparently, not only because of the show, he points out, but because of other movies and media. But as like they're all blonde and rich and beach babes and, you know, and Wearing high cut
0: bikinis and or not or one pieces, it was the one pieces, right? Exactly, which so incredibly high cut. Um, yeah, the, well, it was. It's funny though that this is brought up because Esquire did this huge oral history of Baywatch, and Alexandra Paul, who was on the show from ninety two to ninety seven, uh, argued that our show did a lot of good things, especially in places like China or Iran, where people saw women wearing bathing suits and it was okay. <laughs> To me, in a way, culturally, we did a lot of good. I think people don't give us credit for that. And I will say, I, I try to do some scholarly, re- scholarly research on the <laughs> global cultural impact of Baywatch and whether or not it did, seeing those, those tan and toned thighs of Pamela Anderson and the rest, uh, did something for women. And, I didn't find a lot of supporting evidence, but apparently this one travel writer thinks that it's uh, on the downside, the reason why it might be
1: endangered. <laughs> right. Well, one of the people in that Esquire interview was Gary Cole, the director of photography at Playboy. And he was talking about what kind of woman the show was looking for, looking to cast. And he says that the show was looking for an outdoor girl, all natural, all American. You had to be able to run down the beach fast. And the girl obviously had to have breasts large enough to move the right way under those bathing suits. But, so he's saying all, all natural, all American. But according to casting director Susan Glickman, she said, it varied from character to character, but they were like, find us somebody who's sexy. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, no one, but for both the male and female actors on the show, written in their contract was a clause, this is according to that oral history on Esquire, uh, that no one was allowed to, to gain weight. Even Hasselhoff, I bet. Yeah. You know, you gotta stay trim. On the beaches of Baywatch. Exactly. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of weird to think of uh, the the contrast between the real world sort of battles on the beaches and this strange thing that is Baywatch, which might seem like a relic of a bygone cultural era here and now. But I wonder too, for international listeners, uh, is does Baywatch still come on all the time? Is it kind of like how? I don't know what's a show that's always in syndication. It's
1: like Frasier. <laughs> Here, Frasier's always on. Frasier's always on somewhere. And has it shaped your perception of American lifeguards, <laughs> Frasier? Yeah. <laughs> Fra- <laughs> Frasier certainly has. Yes. Um, so, so that's what we've got for you
0: on lifeguards. That's the the long and the short of it for this summer. Short. And lifeguards out there, um, especially female lifeguards, have you encountered? You know, male people, (laughs) male people, uh, guys who are struggling, who don't want to be rescued by you, any kind of impediments to climbing up the, the lifeguarding ladder, because there is a, an annual all women lifeguard tournament sponsored by the National Park Service that I was reading about, and the challenges that you have to go through are intense.
1: Yeah, this year it's in July, end of July, there's like 10 different challenges, and they involve lots of paddling and running and swimming and being way more athletic than I am.
0: It's like Iron Woman. It is. I now imagine female lifeguards as Iron Women, all of them. Bionic. And I still can't swim very well. (laughs) So with that, email us your thoughts, momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send us your letters. And in the meantime, we've got one here about our episode on women and archaeology.
1: Yes, this is from Jessica. She says, I just finished listening to your Women in Archaeology episode and loved it. You mentioned the Indiana Jones effect a few times and lamented that there was no female equivalent. However, I think that Elizabeth Peter's Amelia Peabody mystery series is just that. Amelia is an English lady of independent means in the late 19th century that becomes an Egyptologist. She's brilliant, self-confident, and always very practical. It's a great series, and after reading it in high school, I too wanted to become an archaeologist. In the end, I decided not to go into that field when I found out that it involved a lot of sorting pot shards in museum basements. And eventually, I found that wildlife biology was much more my speed. Still, it's a great series about a woman who can hold her own against murderers and her male colleagues alike. And I have to point out that there is... Who's that character in uh, that Rachel Weiss plays in The Mummy? She's, isn't, she's oh, an archaeologist, right? Yeah, but... I mean, she... Uh, yeah. Isn't that also star Brendan Fraser? <laughs> uh,
0: so, yes, at discovery.com is our email address. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And if you would like more information on how to have fun in the sun safely this summer, head on over to our website. It's howstuffworks.com.